Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. You know, the journey of healing we often think is linear, but it's anything but that. We think it's like we're climbing a stair to some sort of, you know, elevated higher state where all of a sudden all hurts will not affect us and being human will cease to be but we'll still be in our bodies, which is sort of an irony that that we think some sort of elevated state is to not feel you know, I think about how Eckhart Tolle speaks to this subject of like that being the activation of your pain body when you're triggered. And really, it's about the observation of your trigger or your response rather than the dissolution of it where it doesn't exist anymore. So if you believe you're unhealed because you still get triggered, know that your trigger actually exists to protect you. It's like a warning sign. But how you respond to it is really where the evolution occurs. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, healing is not linear. It is a very convoluted process. And, you know, when we take a first step and we might go in the wrong direction, we think that we failed and we start over, but you don't. You actually continue to the next step that you know is the next right step because you took, quote unquote, the wrong step. And this is why decisions that we make that lead us to other areas of our life, to different places, we often only celebrate the ones that go well, but the ones that don't go well actually lead you to the ones that go well. You know, it's this strange sort of paradox, but, you know, in a lot of ways, we're resistant to having challenging feelings, having challenging experiences in life. And, you know, I have so much grace and understanding for that because, you know, it, there's, I, I experience challenges all the time. I experience struggles all the time. I experience things that don't go my way, you know, quote unquote. 
but they go the right way. That's an interesting perspective to shift to, which is not bypassing the grief with things. You know, when someone tells you a challenge they've had and we say, well, you know, it's all working out for the better. That's just how life goes. You know, it is what it is. I always hated that fucking saying. Those are dismissive because they don't acknowledge what's actually occurring, the pain, the loss, the suffering. And although it can be happening for a reason and it can be all working us in the right direction, it's about holding both spaces, the space of letting go and holding on to the hurt of whatever has occurred and knowing that a greater version of you is always being born. Uh, I've been, as I mentioned previous episodes, I've been listening to an audio series from Francis Weller called The Alchemy of Initiation. And in it, he says that alchemy doesn't care about the alchemist. So alchemy being the process of transformation, you know, it'd be turning lead into gold, that alchemists could turn things into gold, could convert their state. And when we talk about this on a more physical level, like, sorry, maybe even a more human level. It's moving from adolescence to adulthood, moving from uh, a trap in patterns of, and cycles that are toxic into healthy patterns, you know? And so in doing that, we alchemize. In doing that, we, the old behaviors must die. And in that is a grief, in that is a loss. And what is born from that is a more expanded version of us. And, you know, we think about that growth must always only feel good or growth doesn't involve regression, but growth involves regression or it wouldn't be happening. You know, I feel like we bump our head further into something to figure out that we shouldn't put our head there, you know, much like if we continue to experience painful outcomes based on decisions and choices we've made, it keeps inviting a deeper pain to look at the decisions and choices. So in the point of exasperation, in the point of I don't have any more, take a deep breath, because that's where you've surrendered. That's where what is wanting to be born from you, to be alchemized, is ready. And you become the gold, you become the expanded version of yourself, you become the adult version of yourself, the version of yourself that stands for more. And you know, when we're done with all the bullshit, what's left there, it's just truth. Usually truth that we've been avoiding, usually truth that we were taught to ignore, usually truth that we had to ignore to survive. But when all falls apart, that's what we are left holding. And that can be an extremely sad state because all the things that we weren't listening to, all the things that we didn't want to acknowledge are in our hands. And they're in our hands and we're holding them and we see them and we have no distraction anymore. And so much then do we want to reach for rosé all day or weed or sex or tinder or whatever it is, even running, exercise. We want to reach for a thing that will distract us, but just sit in that space in the cocoon and hold the truth and love it and hold the child who maybe have been ignored throughout that experience, who's been, you know, pulling on the side of your pant leg saying, hey, 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 what about me? Why do we keep putting me and us 
in challenging situations that hurt us. And that's when the adult is born. And so painful life situations, although yes, they happen for a reason. Oh, there's a, it wasn't meant to be. In them is a transformation, transformational process. And that's why it's actually imperative that we explore the pain and the fire that's in them. And that's why I love that saying from Francis Weller that alchemy doesn't care about the alchemist. It doesn't care about you. It cares about the material it's working on, the pain, the challenges, the life situation. It cares about the vessel, you. It cares about making you better if we listen. It's amazing because all of that sort of knowledge, that that awareness of going into the fire is what we experience when we treasure our elders. It's what we experience when we value knowledge from older generations. Those things get passed down and we live, depending on where you live in the world, but we very often live in a space where we don't embrace. We're so uh, wanting to hold on to youth and afraid of death, afraid of aging, afraid of transformations in life and stages of life that we try to hold on to them through whatever surgical interventions, whatever you know, drugs we might take, anything to hold on to that, not realizing that the most beautiful sacred thing is the process of learning and aging. And I believe as we allow ourselves to recognize the beauty in that, and again, there's no judgment in all of those things. We've been conditioned to need those things and want those things, and there's no shame in even wanting those things. It's just the exploration of why because we have devalued the aging process, especially in women. And, you know, when we start to embrace it within ourselves, because, you know, to say, well, we need to change media. We need to change all these things. No, we need to accept them within ourselves. We have to accept them within ourselves in the face of all of these other things, in the face of the media that will tell you you're not enough, in the face of magazines and TV shows and all the things, in the face of the Kardashians. Who are you? Do you accept you? Do you love the process? Do you love the aging? Do you love the knowledge that is being born from you? And that is such a beautiful moment of reckoning, of coming home, of acceptance. And then it doesn't matter, you know? And that's when we embrace, you know, we might not get along with our specific elders, but there is lots of wisdom in the elders, and that is available. They probably have their own YouTube channel now, let's be honest. So, you know, today I wanted to talk about that transformative process through the lens of both the therapeutic and the somatic, so the body being the somatic. And I'm really excited to have on a guest today who has explored all of those avenues and gone sort of deep into one and then into another and talking about, you know, how the body processes trauma, all these different things. I want to share just a little bit of Tammy Amanda, that's the guest today. I want to share a bit of her writing first, uh, just something that she wrote, just a couple sentences that I loved. And, you know, Tammy is a embodiment coach and a licensed clinical social worker and a human on her own journey dedicated to helping all of us release everything from keeping the truth from ourselves. So here's a beautiful little snippet. We have no more work to do. We have a lot of loving, nurturing, listening, and accepting to do. You are not a self-improvement project. You are a human who has been taught that they are too much, too needy, too emotional. You've been taught for, that for love and belonging, 
you need to shrink and play small. You've been taught that love is self-abandonment. None of this conditioning is your shame to carry. It isn't. It isn't your shame to carry. But it is our responsibility to grab ourselves from those states and grow and rescue ourselves and do the work and in turn inspire those around us too. So without further ado, here is Tammy Amanda. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. Excited this week to dive in with Tammy Sasson. Did I pronounce that right? Yes, you did. <laughs> I feel like it's a mix of both French and Italian or something. I get that a lot. It's Israeli. Oh, shit. Well, I fucked that one up. All right. Well, <laughs> well, I pronounced it properly, at least. Um, so Tammy is a licensed clinical social worker in the state of New York and also an embodiment coach. Yeah. So I'm interested how those, I'm guessing the embodiment coach occurred after the, the licensed clinical social worker. But like, take us on your journey. I, I'm so fascinated by you and what you've, what you've done and what you've been through that I want everyone else to hear sort of your journey of thought and process, because I think it can be very uh, helpful to those listening. Yeah. I, so I, I love to talk about the intersection of psychology, clinical work, and embodiment and embodied work, so somatic work. My career, I was so sure that for the rest of my life, I wanted to work with children, families, save kids from the devastating effects of trauma, really motivated by my life story. And I was very passionate, excited when I went back to grad school. I landed in an internship, you know, call it whatever, coincidence or whatever. A professor approached me who was building out a complete nonverbal somatic-based trauma therapy program for immigrant and refugee kiddos who had just recently fled from various countries, from Africa, from the Middle East, um, for safety in the U.S. And there was an international school solely for immigrant and refugee children. My introductory into clinical work was nonverbal. So I never really mm. was exposed early on to behavioral therapy for kids or a lot of what is more commonly done in therapy, even in my experience with all of the therapy I had been through, I had so long yearned for embodied work, but could not access it. And so when I was approached by her, this was like a full body yes. And I watched kids heal without speaking to them ever, without them ever telling me their story, without them ever reliving that in words, literally through, you know, using balls and rolling and self-soothing and regulating their bodies. And the transformations were so great that the program is now adopted in all the public schools across St. Louis City and County. So it's in over 30 wow. schools now. So not just with um, kids who are immigrants who don't speak English, but in any, it's like now moving away from the need for the verbal sort of talk therapy yeah. to this, where it's just part of the curriculum. Well, it's for kiddos who have significant trauma and are uh, very, and so the the ones who are often labeled the bad kids, the disruptive mm -hmm. ones, you know, who are often medicated for ADHD. And so often we don't ask about trauma in the home environment. So for those kids who have been identified and obviously clinically assessed, they get this program. 
And the other cool part was that we got to help the schools become more trauma-informed. So instead of how oftentimes conflict is diffused and dysregulation is diffused, we really got to teach the schools everything from what the art on the walls were to how they were responding to breakdowns and flashbacks and all of these things. And so it really was like a full systems approach and the change was just completely mind-blowing. And there were other pieces to this that pulled at ethics of therapy, like you can never take gifts from families, you have to have really strong sort of boundaries. And I would have significantly failed at that role if I did not sit down to meals with these families, if I did not accept scarves that they made for me, because there's cultural awareness here of other cultures that offer things and feel safety through gesture, through sharing, through breaking bread, right? Through serving you. And Mm -hmm. so there was a lot that kind of was like pinging me in the back of my head, right? That could be a bit different. Like like notice this, notice this. For the people listening, just before we go on, I wanted to like, when we think about, just to define the word somatic, just so people, because they might be like, well, I have no idea what you mean. Yeah. So the way that I refer to somatic therapy is really body-based therapy. So therapy that really is done in the body. So feeling the feelings, moving sort of emotional energy through the body, embodying the concepts that we're learning. So to to really kind of simplify this and share is like, if I understand that shame is a full physiological body response, like Brene Brown refers to this as the shame spiral, right? So my shame spiral will feel really out of body and I'll feel like I'm not grounded and I'll get dizzy and I'll start sweating. So I can't talk my way out of that. So my job at that point is to come back into the moment. And sometimes that's by drinking cold water, giving myself pressure squeezes, um, taking big breaths if I have access to it. And so that's what I refer to as somatics. Like I cannot think my way sometimes out of really big responses. And so learning how to embody my way out of them is is what I refer to. Yeah. That's awesome. So if someone thinks like, I know for me, when I more previously would shut down, get triggered, I would feel like my throat would get tight. My heart rate would go up. I could not actually create words. I, there was like a, a disassociation. And so for that, that is kind of the journey that you could go on is learning how to slow your heart rate down, take deep breaths. Is that, am I understanding that correct? Yeah. Like when we even boundaries or when we get triggered and we feel this lump in our throat, right? That's the body saying this doesn't feel safe to do because historically it hasn't been. Mm -hmm. So the body is going to latch on to past experience to try to protect you. But oftentimes that protection keeps us cycling and hurt cycles. And so we want to tend to that in the body without just being like, go away. I'm going to do this anyway, because that doesn't work. So it's exactly what you said. It's coming in and trying to calm the sensation down. So can I almost like fully breathe into the lump? Can I give it a color and like a sensation to where I can allow it to fully dissipate and be with it before I try to set the boundary and go into complete fight or flight and shut down and all of those things? Yeah. So when someone has learned, like, for example, with boundaries, when someone's learned the intellectual construct of a boundary, they've maybe talked with their therapist or someone about who they need to place a boundary with, what that boundary needs to look like, but then they go to do it 
and there's an inability or as you know we were just saying that somatic response so with this is the way to do the embodied part of that the integration cool all right so like if i'm in a we're listening this sounds pretty cool i'm sure everyone's like fuck that's what i need damn it (laughs) (laughs) it's the hardest work because when you're so activated you don't want to calm down like we love this response this response keeps us protected we love it but we don't love it when we can't get into the relationships we need our boundaries are being Mm -hmm. violated and it's, so it's always yes. And it's like, there's beautiful places for concepts and speaking and sharing and learning. But if we ever never do the and of living into it and trying the experience of moving through that, then we don't get the change we want. Yeah, absolutely. It's like where knowledge doesn't actually, it's not integrated. So you can know something, but it's like laying a boundary, but not having a consequence and just staying in the situation. Your body's still in a threatening state in a place that's not safe, but you laid a boundary, but the boundary is not, it's not embodied yet, especially if you uh, don't have a consequence to a boundary. That's a big deal. Yeah. And if it's not embodied, then oftentimes we can't hold it. And then we blame ourselves for being Mm -hmm. bad that we can't do it. And so it's like, then we go into the shame cycle. So that's why it's so important to not rush into hard things, but like piecemeal to hard things, like one bite at a time of disarming the system that has been so beautifully, meticulously designed to protect you. Yes. yes. Journey. It's not like, I'm just going to bulldoze this thing and be done. Right. And no. Yeah. Yeah, And it's like, you're not going to, don't try to lay your first boundary with your narcissistic mom, you know, <laughs> like start yeah. with a stranger who's standing too close to you or like, you know, like that's yeah. baby steps. So if, uh, just so I understand you correctly, you're, so you're in this work, you're doing this school stuff, you're working with kids who have trauma, you make this, which sounds really awesome. This spaces that have cool art and you teach the teachers how to be trauma-informed, to respond to these reactions, which every school should have that. That's It's kind of ridiculous when you learn about these things and you're like, uh, why do, haven't we always been doing that? But whatever, progress, progress, progress. So, th- But you're also starting to see that your ability to even connect to the families and to the children is being hindered by the ethical um, guidelines that therapy has, which things like don't self-disclose, don't hug, don't accept gifts. So culturally, that's really interesting, right? Because if we don't have a cultural awareness of a practice that is about appreciation, then it can be very insulting to the people. For sure. And I'll, you know, I'm going to jump back into that story, you know, like, especially like when I worked with Muslim families, and they had spent six hours preparing a meal for me. And I walked in just like completely like, what? Like I was not expecting to be here for four hours and I had to make a choice to call an interpreter and join them for a four hour lunch that they literally probably woke up in the middle of the night to do for me and just build comfort with them and share my story. And we had the most beautiful relationship because of it. And so many people would have said, that's not the right thing, you know? Um, but in the moment that was the right thing. So there was a lot of pings about like where ethics were not aligning with reality and value systems. Mm. Anyways, I ended up leaving St. Louis. Fast forward, life changed. I came back to New York, got a job. And over time, 
I just kept getting more and more and more pings. Like, you know, kind of seeing the systems of outpatient mental health and while they're beautiful and they serve many populations, families are in those systems for 20 to 30 years. So much overturn in therapists because the pay is so low and therapists are so burnt out because how can you serve 40 clients, right? A week and give your best. How can you do therapy in communities where basic needs are not met? And so there were so many things happening and it it was not feasible. I just, there, again, there was a lot of ethics. You know, I was being asked to work with autistic children when I had no formal training in autism and I was being told, just do your best, just do your best wow. read the book, read the book. That's what my supervisor said to me. And just read a book on autism. And, and now I, you are a licensed autistic a therapist for autistic kids. Wow. And I had kids on my caseload. I had no, I did not understand autism. My background was trauma. <laughs> wow. And in that too, you said like these families are part of it for 30, 40 years because they might come for the therapy, but the system itself is traumatizing. So they go back into the system experience. Is that right? Yeah. So like I had so many, like just women crying to me, like, like when I was leaving, like you're my 15th therapist and this was not a foreign story. And it was, you know, so you're not even creating consistency because the therapy systems oftentimes are not equipped and they're hustling for funding. So they have to meet certain criteria in terms of serving. And it's not at all based on outcomes. It's completely based on numbers in the door is so many things were wrong, right? And so I left that job to go into private practice. And again, private practice is very exclusive, especially in New York City, when you have two office rents, you can only serve people that can afford you when you have to pay five grand in rent a month. So there were so many things that were just not okay. I mean, I'm just scratching the surface here really, but I was really feeling like handcuffed, suffocated, um, cornered, and again, trying to align and uphold ethics while I was internally violating my own value and ethics system of accessibility, like care being accessible, of affordability, of so many things. So anyways... I got really, really tired um, and really wanted to do something different. And I really missed that work of working in the body. And um, a little bit about, I had started working with somebody to do my own embodiment work. You know, my wonderful coach, Courtney McNabb. And I, I had done so much work with kids and families in that arena and neglected it in my own life. And I hit this like, point in my journey where it was like, this is it. Like this sets my heart on fire. And I'm so scared to go in because of all of my stuff. And Mm. as I transitioned, I really took the time to do the work for me and allow all of that to heal so many areas that even in being in therapy myself was not accessible. Again, because of pedestals and walls. And I didn't trust therapists because of my trauma. Like I don't trust people who don't feel human to me. Yeah, um, Tell me more about that. What was it about? Um, like your experience with, with therapy? Yeah. Like, and again, 
just a disclaimer, I support therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. this is just my experience. And so I don't want to say that therapy is not valuable. Um, I'm just speaking to loopholes and gaps and areas for possible growth for the whole kind of um, like that profession. And my experiences there um, really were just that I had there was just a lot of power dynamics, a lot of agendas. You know, I did EMDR for five years and nothing was changing. And I couldn't have known at the time that I was trying to heal my trauma that every time I tried to go into my body, I would fall asleep. (laughs) Like I couldn't do it. Like my body, I would just go to sleep. And it was like five years because like, I didn't know that there was another way. And I didn't, you know, this was just one example. And the therapist at the time, maybe he was doing his best, but never once said like, maybe we need to do some somatic work, right? Like maybe <laughs> we need to maybe we should try something different. Yeah. And, but that was always my experience. Just these platitudes of like, that sounds so hard. Like, Come on, give me something else. Like, <laughs> That's empathy. That's I would be a millionaire for the amount of times the same person for five years said, that sounds so hard. Like, okay, I, I, it's hard. <laughs> it I'm is hard. It is hard. I'm asleep I'm right now. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it's like, or, you know, I'm sorry that you're still struggling with this. How can I support you? You know, which yeah. is a beautiful question. Beautiful question. But, you know, all these years into it, it's like, I'm learning how to support me. That's why I'm here. So maybe we can collaboratively so I can ignite my own self-healer so that I can even, you know, there were so many things that often just left me being like, I don't know, if I knew how to do this, I wouldn't be sitting here. Mm. And never once was it like, you know, I experienced this thing. There was never like, God forbid, anyone ever showed me any side of humanity. It was always like, I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. Like they're not disclosing their own journey or there's not an empathic feeling that's authentic. You mean, because there's a, there's that uh, ethical wall. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I continue. Yeah. I was going to say like all the therapists I know who are like tremendous are like have done so much of the holistic stuff that there's not, maybe they don't adhere. I mean, I don't know how hard the guideline is on self-disclosure, but I've certainly experienced like, it's like any profession, you know, you have some people who are really doing the work and other people who are not. And, but when the profession itself can tie your hands and it has it just been historically, the profession came uh, through that way. Like that, that, that it was about no self-disclosure. It was about just being in a chair with someone. Yeah. Like the idea of no self-disclosure is really about um, client safety. So it's Mm -hmm. like if clients, and I don't speak about self-disclosure as a way to like hijack client time. So it's taught that like you can self-disclose only if it is completely valuable for the client. Mm -hmm. That's the rule. And only to kind of form relationship. But the idea is that the more depersonalized you are, the safer you are as a person, which is why there's no Facebook friending, no Instagram, which in theory makes great sense. And for some people, I think that really works. For me, who had such severe childhood trauma, those kinds of walls were not going to break me. Mm, Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Like I was not getting better behind your wall. 
And it didn't make those people bad. And there's some incredible therapists who are doing incredible work. And again, that's why I disclaim this by saying yeah. this is the whole profession. But so my experience consistently was just that it was just one day a week for 45 minutes. And it was just a lot of the same talking of the same things where I really wanted to know how to move, how to get out of the story and into my life. Like that's the wall I kept hitting over and over and over. Like, how do I take this and change my life? Mm, how do I embody, as we were saying at the very beginning, yeah, like, how you do know, I, I, you're telling me this, we're talking about it, but my life's not different. Yeah. Like I know my whole story. I know what happened to me, but why am I still in this abusive partnership? No matter how many weeks I come here and promise you, I'm going to get out of it. Then I just lie to you for six months because now I feel embarrassed because now truthfully, I feel like it's my fault. Mm. Like, and because you're going to therapy, you should be figuring this out. Okay, that makes sense. So in the in the experience of all of that, I remember I had Terry Real on here, who's a therapist as well. And he was saying at the very beginning that I can't remember his exact words, but essentially like that was one of the flaws in the designs of the work that he really challenges, which is that there's not like this humanity that that like they're not seeing themselves in you because there's a wall so that they can't in some ways. Like I wanted to hear more of like, like I've got you, like I know you're not out of this. And what I want to help you do is figure out let's work together because this isn't working. I wanted more ownership. I wanted less deflection. Mm. I mm, wanted, yeah. more, you know, this is what I know about this and maybe we can do it like this. I will never judge you instead of like, we're just going to keep doing the same thing. And yes, do we all have a role in our own healing? A thousand percent. There is always self-responsibility and we are all self-healers. And however, if we don't know that and our whole lives, we've been taught shame that we're broken, that we're messed up, we're going to look to professionals to carve the path because how am I supposed to know that? I don't know that, nor do I trust that. My whole life has just been one disaster after the other. And that's why I'm sitting in your office. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's yes. And it's like the journey of waking up to that. Like, oh, I got this. So there's like, you're not in this complete dependence kind of cycle. Um, but that dependent cycle never breaks if nothing changes, because then you start to think again, you're wrong. And I just, maybe I need to do twice a week, or maybe it's you, that's the problem. And I need to go to the next therapist or maybe X, Y, Z, or, you know, and, and kind of then the ways we internalize that we're failing. And mm. I've heard this story so many times that it must be me because they're the therapist. It must be me. Yeah, I've certainly like known lots of people and seen that experience where they go to coach after coach or book after book or therapist after therapist, um, repeating the same cycles, wondering when they're going to find the key that fits, you know, and I think it's important for everyone to know, like, what is a traditional system of medication, medicine or healing that is traditional within the systems that we're in doesn't mean it's the right answer which isn't to say that it's bad, right? That's such a separate, it's not yeah. wrong or it has its place, but sometimes it doesn't have its place for us. You know, I know lots of friends of mine who've had some sort of autoimmune who go to traditional med you know, doctors and they don't, not, not Chinese traditional, but uh, um, traditional allopathic medicine. And 
don't find the answer there and then go on this super long journey through holistic health and then finally find the thing that helps them that they have some mystical, you know, virus or something and um, or do somatic work and heal it. Like there's so many different avenues. Um, So I'm fascinated to see like where you you sort of are in the practice of in Manhattan and you're also now getting somatic work. And so you're like, I'm guessing your mind's being blown in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, like I took a break in my transition to fully work on myself and to be like, what what's going on with me so I could fully see clearly and like, so I could embody this, like this thing that was like pulling at me that this is the next step. But like also acknowledging that I hadn't really given because I hadn't given myself permission to live into that next step yet. Like I was offering it, but I couldn't jump in with clients because I was so scared still. Because no matter how much therapy I did, this body was terrifying for me. Like Mm -hmm. I always thought I was going to fall apart. Like it just, it never felt safe. I didn't know anything about my body. Like it was just this foreign entity that I wanted nothing to do with. And it's like so often the reason why we cycle in, in, in talk therapy per se. And I think too, I will say this as a disclaimer, a lot of times when therapists do even try to do somatic work, a lot of times we block it because we're afraid. So again, it's a yes. And therapist, you mean, yeah, the therapist blocks it. So like if a therapist, like I, here's an example, like I tried to seek out a therapist for somatic work and it was definitely not a good fit, but at the time in my life, like I wasn't ready for that. And this was, you know, quite a few years ago. And so again, it's always yes. And, but it's, it's always like assessing within ourselves. Okay. Like this isn't working. So what might be the next step? And this isn't working. Like what might help me get into my body? Like, where can I try to dip my toe in here? Is there something that I see? Because I think something that is so beautiful is like all of the healing modalities that we have access to. And, and also how much is offered for free? Like before Mm -hmm. we dive into like a 10 grand course or like, you know, it's like, if you see somebody doing like an embodied dancing thing that's pulling at you, like, can you try that and see how that feels? Like, where can we take some of our power back and our healing and, and start dipping our toes into things that are moving us and, and pulling at us as opposed to blindly following the paradigm of like, it's supposed to look this way. It's supposed to look this way. It's supposed to look this way. And honoring that we're so unique, all of us, and it's finding the lane for you. And knowing that that lane is going to continue to change as you heal and grow. It's like follow the breadcrumbs. Yeah. And like, there's no specific thing that's going to work for everyone. And that's what's beautiful about us is that like, if there is something inside that's like therapy's not it, honor it and follow the pull and start. And like, this is where we start to develop self-trust instead of getting in trauma cycles in healing relationships, because we do that a lot. Is in your experience then, were you in an internal conflict? Cause you're like practicing as a therapist, but yeah. also now you're experiencing uh, a different type of value and a different type of solution, you know, where maybe like, I know for me, like going into the work I do, a lot of it was just about healing myself first and then being like, holy shit, why don't other people know this? Why are we not all talking about this? And 
And then it's, it, you know, you sort of like follow the, the, I turn my mess into my message. I sort of like, like that concept. So for you, yeah. when you went into therapy, was it seeking your own healing? Yes. I became a yeah. therapist myself and for sure. And I think anyways, and then getting into the somatics, like everything I did was like, okay, like I learned more about myself, like becoming mm-hmm. like there therapy like that was an avenue to help myself yoga training like all of those and you know not everything hit the mark you know i believe anything we do along the way nothing is a waste at some point something lands like even if you walk into that yoga class and it's like the teacher you know we have this experience where it's like uh like i don't want to <laughs> you know and I've done, like, i may have experienced that before <laughs> and you know it's just something that's like what is this reaction here? And what can I learn about my resistance? And there's always something to learn without making it about the other person. And so it's like, I don't, I would never take back anything I did and everything got me to where I was, but there was a point of dissonance. And I'd probably say through all my pain and all of my trauma work, the lowest bottom I hit was when I was out of center in the work that I was putting out into the world, where I was like meeting a new threshold and trying to be there and honoring that I wasn't. Tell me more about that. So you said you were off center. When I, so when I was like offering this embodiment work to kids, like that felt super accessible and um, I was super trained and it was working and all of these things. And when I started wanting to shift out my career into helping women and go into different realms, I had to really look at myself in the mirror and be like, you're offering something you're not willing to do. And that's kind of fraudulent, like not in a shaming mm-hmm. way. Like you're out of integrity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like not in a shaming way, but it was like, this is real. And mm-hmm. it's like you're going to, and I had a choice to make, like go back to what I was doing or engage in my work. And I chose to engage in the work and grow in that way. And like, you know, it, it radically transformed so many things in my life, but yeah, there was a huge point where it was like, eh, this doesn't feel very, very good. Yeah. I know that feeling when I first started writing, I remember thinking like in a lot of ways, the commitment to writing and sharing what I was thinking and feeling was actually, I knew that if I put it out to the world, I'd have to be in integrity with it. So it became this rudder of like, you can't write anything you don't do. You can't say anything you are not. And it continues to be like, say that the the expression is the expansion in a lot of ways. Do you know what I mean? Like in in doing the work, I am becoming the work. And I think that can be really, I think there's something that touches you differently because the reason that became so important to me is because I knew what it was like to be impacted by someone who is in integrity with their word. And I knew what it was like to feel someone who was not, and they felt different. There was a, there was a difference in their message. And I think that's why we get so disappointed when we find out someone we really, you know, cared for or felt mentored by, even though they had no idea they were mentoring us. You find out that they are like not doing anything they say. And you're like, but I really respected your integrity. And then you realize they have none. And in a lot of ways, that's the fault of also putting someone on a pedestal. But but there's also something disappointing about that. It feels like a betrayal. So I, I hear you when you start. I know what the feeling is like when you when 
even when you make a mistake and you're really like, that's out of alignment with my values. Yeah. And I think a lot of us go through that anyway, as we do this work and it's a conversation. I don't know that happens so often publicly, but I think so much too, is that it's so hard for us to, you know, and then I can bring in a whole nother concept here, but let's do it. it. You know, there's a lot of messages around like the universe gives you what you want or the universe matches your frequency or, you know, show up to the universe and you'll get what you want or your thoughts. Yeah. Or your thoughts create your reality or just change your thoughts and change your life or (laughs) these concepts we are exposed to constantly and they are so victim blaming and why are they victim blaming because it's like we already struggle with so much shame and expectation to not be where we think we should be with society expectations with cultural with religion with whatever right whatever lives in our head and so much for so many of us is like, I'm not at the status I wanted. I'm not married. I don't have children. I, my, why is my, why am I getting divorced at 34? Like all of the things that we extra shame ourselves for on top of the shame already. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, they don't allow for breath and permission and joy where we are. Like it can't be that we're on a different path in life. And because yeah. there's constant reinforcing messages that you're wrong, you're wrong. And if you just would have done it that way, or you just would have stuck out this marriage, or you just would have stuck out that job, or you didn't take that trip that you dreamed about, your life would be fine. And it is so undoing that every day when you sign on to Instagram or you see a movie. I mean, it's everywhere. Like this is preach thoughts, thoughts. Like most of our thoughts are not ours. If my thoughts created my reality. Oh my gosh, right. I mean, we could just talk. (laughs) I would have robbed a bank by now because I've certainly been like, I wonder what it's like to rob a bank. (laughs) I now know I am the worst criminal ever. I I stole ice cream once and got arrested. Ice cream. I mean, you know, I'm not a good criminal, but we all have criminal thoughts. We all have these things, you know, and we all have. And that's that part where we when we can, as you know, you were saying that when we can actually just accept that we all fuck up, we all make mistakes. You know, like I think about how many people I meet and having experienced it myself when you go through a breakup and you feel like a failure and you feel like, why didn't I figure? And I think for women, that's like extra too, because they've sort of been socialized to be the glue that holds the family together and to overfunction and and take the grenades for the family and, right. and to just uh, like, I've certainly heard this many times where it's like, but it's not that bad. And I'm like, what? It's not that bad. Like, this is the bar we set that. And then if you get divorced, you get shamed and thrown under, you know, like it's. I have a friend who doesn't even tell people that she had been divorced. And I'm like, man, you you should celebrate that shit. That's what makes you who you are. That's like one of the defining moments of you reclaiming yourself. That shit to me is powerful. Right. And even like. Yeah, it's so powerful. And even I'm like in the subtle ways, like, you know, why, why do you always choose to work on yourself? Why are you such a Debbie Downer? Like, you know, why are you so emotional all the time? Like even these more subliminal messages we get from people around us, like stop working on your humanity. Why are you bringing in the opinionated conversation? Just shut up. Stop, stop it. It's too much, right? It's like, 
that's even on the smaller micro level of this. And so we are constantly, it's like under attack of like, don't be human, follow the rules, blah, blah, blah. So then it's like, when it comes to like, noticing our journey is like, this is where I am and I'm this age. And, and I, it's so much harder to surrender and accept in cultures and societies that don't accept sort of things outside of the norm. And it just adds. And so I say that because it's like, if we could just all give ourselves permission to be where we are, maybe we would pedestal people less. Maybe we would give ourselves permission to be more human, more honest, more vulnerable, more connected instead of always trying to perform for reality that's not ours. And we suffer so much, like paint this picture. That's not real. Mm, amen. Yeah. Deep, which is how deep we breath just, for that. Yeah. You know, how many people think they should have done something different? I remember hearing Carolyn May say that one of the greatest sources of pain that anyone will experience is believing they deserved a different childhood than the one they had. That there was one that exists existed that is not the one they had um, because inevitably you end up in pain but I think about that concept that which is different than you were worthy of respect and worthy of being treated well but I think about that concept that when you are in a place in your life right now and you th you think about all the moments in the past if you had made a different choice you'd be in this place you know and another place, which that is such an abstract, you can't even say that that's true anyways, but just that thought alone creates so much shame. Oh my, I hear so much this shame. constantly. Like if I was just better, if I was just more uh, healed, I just knew how to stop self up. If I, if I just, right. And then again, this comes back to what we were saying about blaming ourselves and shame. I honestly think that shame is the most insidious poison that we walk around with. And all of us. It is literally the thing that penetrates in our veins that projects hate, that projects deflection, that projects everything away from our ability to even take personal responsibility, because that would reinforce the belief that I am in fact broken. If I was to step in just a drop and say, I'm going to hear you out. If I have a deep rooted belief and have been told my whole life that there's something wrong with me, I will forever feel like that is what you are reinforcing. And this is what we perpetuate over and over. It's her fault she stayed in the marriage. It's his fault he did that. It's this child's fault they did that. Let's just medicate them. Stop talking about this. Like the amount that I hear, if I only, why did I do this again? Why am I doing this again? It's like, whoa, whoa. Like this is a disease of our culture. Like it is so... And so many people don't even realize that that's how they walk around. Like everything mm. is my fault. Like I can't even sit on the subway seat without feeling bad for taking up space. And I met a lady at the dog park the other day who yeah. is, her dog is anxious. She's, she's like constantly training her dog, which is great. But the dog is like, I'm trying my best here. You can see the dog is, is trying his best. And I remember saying to her, or she was asking me if my dog has ever done what her dog has done. And it hadn't, but I said, yeah, because I'm like, yeah, we'll just give her, you know, I don't want her to feel bad about her dog. Anyways, she, she then said, I just keep thinking to myself, like, what did I do wrong? And I was like, oh, there it is. In my head, I'm like, there it is. Like, you see your dog through the same lens as how you were taught to see yourself. 
And I'm like, that is crazy. You know, because I'm like, it's just a dog. Like, it's not coming because it hasn't been trained adequately. But that's okay. It's a dog. It's a puppy, you know? And so it's interesting how uh, you were saying, we walk around with that lens. We see everything with that lens. My fault, my fault. I could have, should have done it different. I could have. And man, to get out of that prison of self-blame, you're right. It's perpetuated by a culture that celebrates youth for women and status for men. And marketing just continues and fertility and marketing just continues to push and push and push. So we are inundated with messages. Disney doesn't do much fucking good for us in that sense of like, my story is different. And then I think of all the societal, cultural, which are all integrated with religion. So you have all these religious story messages that say, one, they're heteronormative, two, they're patriarchal, (laughs) three, they're also there's this certain way life should look. Here's the gender rules you're supposed to take on. Oh, you have an opinion? No, you don't. Not if you're female. If you're male, yes, you're allowed to have lots of opinions, but you can't be connected to your heart. And at the end of all of that, if your life doesn't look like any of that shit, you get shamed shit on. And if you challenge that system, you get shamed and shit on, which you have, I mean, for me, that was like, Ultimately, I had to step out of certain rules and take the grenades. You have to take them in order to get out. And then you sort of end up out of the story and you're looking at the story occurring, which becomes like this meta experience, which I think is the ability to have these conversations. You know, anyone listening to this podcast is thinking about how they think. They think about the story they live in. They think about the systems that run them. That is freedom to start to think about the thought, not the thought be yours. Right. A thousand. And then to take what that whole thing you said to the end game, take. if I get shit on, if I get grenades, then who am I in the world? If I am disowned from every system, no matter how harmful and toxic that I was born into. And it's like, it's, it becomes this like, so to the body that is death. That's, that's everything. And that's why it's so hard to say no to your mom because you might die in your body. That's your body's like. Right. It's like, if you put all of that to the end, so no matter how hard you work, if I don't ever learn how to discern between actual death and real death and learn the process of grief and the process of detanglement and detachment in a healthy way, not in like, I'm running away from this system as a rebel because that doesn't, you know, here's the other thing to not complicate this further, but how I do something, (laughs) how I do something is how I get there. So if I run out of a system, bitter, mad, resentful, hateful, which might be part of the process, just because I leave the system, guess what system is, is my DNA. Like I literally spent, um, a month and a half in Bali, the most miserable I was in my life, because guess who goes wherever you go? Like I thought Bali, this beautiful. <laughs> like I like, saw Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert, really. This was not this was, Julia Roberts, Javier Bardem. This was not my experience. This was complete unhealed trauma, PTSD, scared of my own shadow. Walked to the same place every day. I was. I went for freedom, and and you know, just the fact that I went was a huge step on my journey. And and I bring that in to say that there is hope for the listeners. Like there's hope here, yeah. and it's like you know, I think, and I want to tie this even back to the initial like therapy and seeking help for this. I think there's 
I think many things are yes and, and then there's things that are just black and white, but I'll speak to the yes and here. Talking and knowing our story and knowing our patterns is a beautiful thing. And to have that space to do that is so beautiful. Where it becomes harmful is when I don't take that and actually build evidence that life can be different. Mm. Because if I am perpetually aligned with pain and my trauma story, even if I tried to have joy, my body won't let me. Because joy is dangerous because joy is unguarded. Joy is unarmed. And to Mm -hmm. abide with trauma, it's not safe. And so here's the yes and. It's beautiful to be working through whatever you need to work through. But to move forward, there has to be action in terms of living into the life with no evidence that it's going to work. We Mm -hmm. have willing to get uncomfortable. We have to be willing to take risks because we cannot trauma our way out of trauma. Like it's not possible. So we have to learn how to take the small loving micro choices that detour us over and over and over until we rewire the brain through neuroplasticity, right? It's, it's having like whatever wires together, fires together. So the more I take a different action, the more that action will feel easier. The more I act into the life that I want that feels freer, the more that feels easier because Mm. the trauma would be to leave in rage, anger. And sometimes that needs to happen, whatever, but eventually we're going to have to heal that because that's going to eat us. But how we do something is, is how we arrive. So we're going to be left picking up the pieces at some point. So what if we could just give ourselves permission to be where we are and hold that now? Mm. So that we don't dive in and then have to like have seven surgeries to recover. Yeah, I think about it in the, I remember hearing a teacher once say that a lot of our stuff is derived from a dark motivation, which not being like dark being evil, but dark being um, like shadow, anger, rage. And that could be the birth of our freedom. That can, That's what changes worlds, you know, often. But there needs to come a time because dark coping mechanisms are things like alcohol, drugs, sex, manipulation, you know, all these other ways that are dopamine hits that he he was talking about. I remember he said that the transition becomes where the you sit with the darkness and it becomes light. And then your coping mechanisms are integrated in that being meditation, body work, eating nutritious foods. And it's amazing like how simple when someone has this idea, I'm not enough or I'm unworthy, which I would say almost every human sort of comes out of childhood, but some grain of that is, it's amazing how just a simple choice like eating a salad can be, or like something nutritious, something, or taking a walk. Those are all acts of making your bed. You know, all of these are just little moments that say, I matter, I'm worthy. And then you can build the steps to get to the thing know to the scary thing that could be scary though you know some of it is like if we never were cared for or didn't know like and it's so beautiful it's like it doesn't have to be this massive you know and i'll speak to this even in the climate of racism and you know all of my trauma work and learning has been through white males like I studied Mm -hmm. Vander Kolk at the omega institute and and peter levine and, and all of these people they're all white men They've done incredible work in trauma has significantly informed. However, they're not, they're not black and they can never understand that lived experience. Um, Mm -hmm. And bringing this in to say that 
everything, so much of what I learned about safety was like, we have to be safe before we can heal. Mm. And it's like, that's actually not true because I know a lot of black people who are thriving in the world have done trauma work and know that every day they walk out of their house, they're a target. And so I definitely am not an expert and I'm learning. This is a topic I'm diving into to inform my work. Cause even if you think about like treating the child in an abusive home or the women in a DV relationship, and you think about like, and for me, even when I kept going to therapy and he kept saying, let's try this again, let's practice the conversation. I'm sorry, this is so difficult, like barf. Okay. So like, you know, I like, yes, let's keep doing this. And I'm just going to come here next week and tell you I'm out, you know, because yeah. I don't think I deserve the help. And now this is my fault, whatever. But, you know, it's like, where can we start taking the small steps and choices to shift the internal? Like, where can we, despite the external circumstances in our lives, start to find small ways to feel joy and feel better, no matter what's happening around you, right? And understanding that, like, oftentimes it's not the big thing. Like, it might be that it's going to take me six months to a year to build the courage to leave the marriage, right? Mm -hmm. But how I, how I get there is how I'm going to get out. And so what can I do? to build my internal resilience, to create community and to create belonging within me and to start healing all of the reasons why I ended up here. So I can walk out in a loving way with my head up high. Again, this is not including abusive relationships. Even with family, when we leave family, it's not about them understanding. How can I walk away in integrity without making you wrong and me right? Without saying there's a an issue here in value system. And I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Right. If possible. And kind of like understanding that sometimes we can't always wait for the external to be different, to move forward in our lives. Like sometimes we have to say, this is it. And I need to move forward anyway. And this is something I'm like really, really leaning into and starting to understand and becoming more inspired by stories of this, of like Mm -hmm. shifting paradigm because it's a big one. Yeah. uh, For me, I, I think of that as in that is the old way of looking for evidence that it's true from the response of the person or from the response of the environment is still seeking the affirmation outside of self. So that's where our self-worth has evolved to be determined by safety of the people around us. But the validation of our truth, of ourselves, of everything is in the expression, is in the choice, is in... And it's like, that is a huge paradigm shift to go from that person didn't like my boundaries, so my boundary is not okay, to regardless of the person's response to my boundary, the exclamation, the declaration of the boundary is the validation of it and myself. And I love that, that reclamation that you're speaking to, that, that shift. Wow. Yeah, reclaiming our lives. If my whole life is a story of trauma and struggle and depression and eating disorder, then that's what I think I am. So like, if I try to keep living in that paradigm, then that's going to be my life. Or I can say, try to reclaim into life-giving things, into eating healthier, into getting good sleep, into doing my best to have boundaries and, and practice new ways of relating. And like all of these small things that 
seemingly might be so little, but that actually it's the small things that change your life. Always. Mm. I'm not going to jump off a cliff head first without having had taken the steps to get me ready to jump. Like, it's like, this is where we need to stop outsourcing. Like this influencer wrote this, it's going to be this course. It's going to be this book. It's going to be like all the things, right. And start learning how to heal and shift our internal paradigms. A, reclaiming our identities, reclaiming the things that give us life. Like I'm excited to wake up in the morning because I'm learning a new instrument or I'm lit up in this dance class or I have have this new friend that I've never experienced before, or this is safe partnership. Like all of the things that we can give ourselves chances to experience, to reawaken, to joy in life, because it's not about bypassing pain. It's about living in the yes and because life will forever give you pain and be hard. That's a certainty. So can I find a way to enjoy the ride as I continue to heal and reclaim my life and be empowered in that to not deny my pain and my shadow, but be active in this world also in my joy. Mm, So how does someone who may have, you know, who has been, who's listening to us and going, Oh, I hear myself in that. I have been repeating a lot of cycles. I have tried so many things. I've not tried somatic therapy what is the, how do they begin to develop a relationship with the body in that sense? Like, what are the steps to take to go from us intellectualizing these things to us embodying these things? Beautiful. No simple question. I'm going to solve it. <laughs> I'm going to put a little disclaimer here. Obviously, if you are somebody that has endured any kind of bodily trauma, getting into the body is going to be a very slow journey. Maybe not, actually, but. Oftentimes it is, and we want to be really cautious. So as you're listening, if that's you, just know that kind of, and, and be slow with yourself and there's nothing wrong with you. You know, I always think of, you know, the, even the way that I work as an embodiment coach, I'm very practice oriented. So I have a whole library of practices I give to clients. It's various breath works and shaking practices and pleasure practices and intimacy practices and all of the ways in which we've never soothing practices, grounding practices, because again, all of us need different things. And it's always like thinking about the five senses. So how can I experience the five senses present in my day? So like, it's just a very simple way to get into the body. So like, if I'm dysregulated, can I give myself a minute and drink a really cold glass of water or really put cold water on my face or take like a lukewarm shower? Can I give myself some pressure in my body? Can I take some full deep breaths into my belly and pause? Can I smell something scented or taste a delicious piece of whatever, you know, but not in it's in a way to come in in a way to be like, Oh, okay. I noticed how this tastes. Now I'm in my body. What else do I notice? Am I feeling a heaviness in my chest? Okay. There's a heaviness here. Maybe I have a lurking boundary I need to set or a family vacation coming up, or I need some space or whatever okay, there's a heaviness in my chest. Does it feel like electrical cords? Does it feel like a ball? Does it have a color? Can I breathe into the tension here? Can I be with it, right? Can I spend a little time? And and this is kind of, okay, do I feel a sensation in my finger? So it's, it's just a practice of slowly observing to start. And like just the small choices of even noticing sensation, of pausing throughout the day. And if I don't notice sensation, can I bring sensation? If my brain is fully in story 
it's very hard to live in my body. So to get out of a trauma story, my only job in that moment is to try to get into my body. Mm. So I actually can redirect my brain signal that I'm safe here, that I'm here and we can reset and move forward from here. So then I learned that I even have a choice in this moment. Like in here alone, there's only one choice and it's trauma yeah. story. Yeah. That's it. That's it. There's no choice. So it's the continual practice for all of us. What does my breath feel like when I'm anxious versus when I'm calm? What does my breath sound like? What does it sound like to hear myself scream? What does it feel like to like just rub my hand on my thigh or on my arm? Like, what does that feel like to have that, right? This this is the practice of learning the nuances of all of us individually, of learning what feels good and what we don't like, of being present in meals, of like being present when we're practicing a dance class or a shaking practice or a breath practice. Like, can I tolerate this sensation just one second longer, five seconds longer, one minute longer to the point where I can be triggered in conversation with a loved one and be able to hold space and not shut down. Like the more I can practice activation, the better I get at living activated, like being human. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I think about my journey through that hasn't been so uh, linear, you know, it wasn't like an intention, (laughs) but in that it wasn't um, like the process of doing that wasn't explained to me. It just happened in some ways. Do you know what I mean? Like it happened through the breadcrumbs I followed, the experiences like meditation and then, you know, being in a romantic relationship where I remember this moment when I was talking to a girl I was dating and I forget what was occurring, like what the conversation specifically was about, but the the relationship was like on its edge. Like it was either going to end or not. And normally in this conversation, I remember observing uh, the conversation as I was in it. And in the moment where every single other time I could remember that I would shut down and not talk and perhaps leave, I actually stayed and I breathed. I took a bunch of breaths and then I actually said something. <laughs> I asked a question and I remember seeing that I was on the other side of something that I had never been on in that. And I had this like immense amount of pride, like healthy pride that was like, you did it. You're like here, you're here and you've never made it to the depths of this type of conversation before because you always end things before this or you leave things before this because you're hurt. And so now I was in this place where I was having a choice in the conversation. And it was such an interesting experience because when I left it, regardless of the relational outcome, it was that I didn't, I didn't shut down. And then I remember in higher intensity um, conversations, my body being so shut down that I couldn't even produce a word, but doing what you were saying, like, how do I feel right now? Why is my heart rate so high? Where do I feel like, where's my stress in my body right now? If it could speak, what would it say? And I was doing this all internally as, <laughs> as my partner at the time was shut down too. So we were both just like paused and freeze, but in a, in a agreed freeze, you know, so it's so cool that you could take yourself through that journey. Yeah. You know, and also when you can learn you know, we're so afraid of discomfort and being activated. It's like this territory that's like, that means that there's something wrong, that I'm broken, mm-hmm. that 
I, and often it's also because we don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So we react, we react in ego, we react in coping. We, you know, the paradigm is often like only is a coping skill when you're feeling activated. Like what? I will never use it when I'm activated if I don't do it every day. Right. (laughs) Right. I don't teach only coping skills when activated. I teach grounding every morning and every night. And I teach a practice that is consistent so that when you need it, you're going to use yeah. it yeah. because you're an expert. Like I can't just decide to calm down once a month. No, no, no. My body. No, like that's not going <laughs> to happen. So you know, yeah. What is that? Go. Sorry, go on. What were you going to say? I was thinking about that quote, like in the history of being told to calm down, no one has ever come down and it's a hundred thousand percent true. Yeah. And it's like the daily things we choose to do to support our, our journeys and our balance and our yes ands are actually what predict how we'll show up when things get activated. And mm. And it doesn't have to be work on yourself. It doesn't have to be so hard. You know, it can be this really playful, joyous adventure of coming back home. Like it can just be this journey of like, this is how I live now, where I actually get to have space in the world. And I actually get to claim minimally five minutes of my morning to check in with myself. Because really, that's what we want. We want to know ourselves better. We want to know what we like. We want to know how to spend our time. We want to know the people who we who feel safe for us. We want to know how, what pleasure feels good. We want to know what food we like. Like, you know, we want to know better. We want to feel like we belong somewhere. And that's in here. And if I never learn, I never belong. Mm-hmm. I'm always trying to figure out like how to belong. Or how to adapt. Or who I need to be. And so it's like, you're the best investment of time in learning. Truly. Like, we carry so much wisdom and so much knowledge. When we can get past, like, I'm defective, there's something wrong with me. And understand that it's actually systems that have failed us and paradigms. And this is our trauma. That that is not, in fact, who we are. Life starts to feel better. And we feel better because like when you talk about like woke, whatever, what is woke? Yeah. It's like this knowing of like who I am and what's important and an integrity and a reverence and respect and honoring, right. Of self. And how could I ever get there if I never know what self is? Mm, I think about how much that practice that you're speaking to allows us to choose our identity rather than just be something we were taught. And I, you know, one so simple one, and it's just easy to to reference, is religion. Like you are born into a religion. You do not choose your religion till you choose it. And I think one, you know, obviously there's so many values that then get indoctrinated in us based on the religion that we experience. And it's just such a simple because it's a global experience for people. I can't speak to everyone's specific family, but religiously we know how it sort of looks. And And I know for me, being a recovering Catholic, I look back and I go, okay, there was a moment in high school, I remember, where I felt the values of the church were not my values. Like the way they treated someone based on their choice, I was like, fuck this. This is not for me. And I think, you know, what I love about the practice you're speaking to is it allows us to get to know ourselves 
not not like who we were taught and the bullshit we pretended to like and be to keep everyone happy around us to now we're like whoa and it might feel selfish at first <laughs> you know actually taking time for oneself and being yeah. present to oneself and it might trigger people around you because they don't do that either and you discover that your identity is challenging their identity when you question things within your belief system it inevitably causes everyone who's forgotten about questioning it to get really reactive because it challenges the identity they hold. Right. It And yeah, here's the other thing. Like we, we are, we're going to lose people because people like people who play by the rules, people like people who don't challenge them. People like people who sort of follow the same paradigm because then they don't have to be called out and they don't have to be called to actually looking at. And again, there's no shame there. This is all conditioning. Like this is not about making somebody else bad. And this is not about you're wrong and I'm right. This is about a deep empathic understanding of why this is set up this way. And that it is so meticulously set up that so many people don't even think they have a choice for anything to be different for them, that this is how it is. And that is the power of a system that it's like, okay. whoa, I don't even have choice here. And one of the first things I, I speak about free will and choice all the time, because this there's no such thing as healing without reclaiming choice. But in reclaiming choice, you will inevitably lose people. For sure. Have to. But the other, yeah, the other side of that is that you get to be in community and friendship and partnership with people who acknowledge you, who feel similarly to you. And you feel more alive in the world because you're expressed, you're not hiding. And so even in the pain of grief, you're alive for the first time. And grief is so grounding. You know, it's so grounding. You can't escape the joy and elation. They make you fly. But grief, it holds you down in such a beautiful way. And, you know, as you were saying that about, like, when you wake up to that choice, when you realize you have a choice, that then uh, what I see occurs a lot, probably because it occurred, because it occurred with me, is that as soon as I realized I had a choice in the story I wanted to be part of, the life I wanted to live, I then was like, wait. I've had a choice this whole time and I have a choice over so many things. Why have I allowed myself to, to believe the things I believe to operate the way I operate? And you realize that you're just part of this massive system that is an organism that is just moving, just like a system that keeps everything together. And as you were saying earlier, that's why it's, it's so hard to change it because you're literally going against the momentum of economic systems, religious systems, societal systems, evolutionary systems, uh, power systems. I mean, all of them are power systems. So if that's not a big undertaking, your rebellion is our rebellion. You know, that's the beauty of an internal reclamation is becomes a community, a community's reclamation. Yeah. And like when people, like when people say, and I, I actually was talking about this in my group program last night, we were talking about soul mission and purpose and how often purpose and soul mission is identified as career and how so many people feel left out of that. Right. Like for me, it's not career. So does that mean that I have no purpose here? You know, yeah, like and, I'm not going to be an accountant. So I guess I should just call it a day, you know? 
Yeah. And, you know, it's like across the board, I said to all the women, you know, when you hear purpose, what is, what do you hear? And they all said career. And, you know, it's like, because we overly identify purpose as career. And, you know, I think a lot about this because we are biologically wired to feel purposeful. Mm -hmm. Like we thrive in purpose. And what really does purpose mean for us as humans? It's engaging in life-giving things, in engaging in community, in systems, in, and literally, it could literally look anyway. That could be purpose is cycle breaking in your family and your cycle breaking literally will change every child generation after you. So you just created a new world. Your purpose might be conscious motherhood because you had a super abusive mom. So to like that purpose is tremendous and your impact of raising children will impact every child in that child's classroom. Mm. Your purpose might be being a home for adopted puppies, like, or baking cupcakes for a nursing home or playing music freely in the park. And somebody who's severely depressed walked by you one day and felt alive in that moment. And we so often underestimate the the choices we make for betterment in ourselves. And I, I don't even love the word betterment to just be better humans and grow and evolve and reclaim who we are. But the impact of that for every system we come up against ripple effects and the people that disown you, they see you, they want it, they want it so bad. That's why they disown you. And it's like, when we can find the things that give us life and the connections and communities we start to feel really good when we were aliens in our families and aliens to religions and shunned and always on the outside of life, right? Learning to participate back in life in what makes you come alive has to be a part of our work. Mm. It has to be to connect back into that. I think as you talk about all that, I think about, I was watching Big Little Farm. Do you know that that movie uh, and for those listening you should watch it it's such an inspiring movie but it's about this couple that moves to a farm in california gets investors and turns this thing into like uh, it's not a spoiler alert when you watch the trailer you see it it turns it into this thriving ecosystem and i remember then looking up like organic farms and farms around where i live and i saw this video of this woman who bought a farm like 40 years ago and now her children have come back and they're raising their families on this farm and she said you know, we're not meant to work nine to five every day. We're meant to work on the land. We're meant to be in community. We're meant to, we're meant to enjoy our time here on the planet. And I thought, what an interesting concept. Of course, there's so many socioeconomic um, influences in that, that I want to be mindful of, but that like my brain from being a child and a boy was taught become a provider and make $100,000 a year, which with inflation is a lot more now, but make that amount of money because that determines if you're successful. So you can have a partner, one, so you'll be valued as one, and two, that you can make sure your family is safe. And when she said that, I thought, holy, is there ever an inner conflict within me right now with knowing that's the truth, what she just said, and knowing that what I was taught is like being on a hamster wheel. You know, and I, I, I love what you said because it's like purpose is not career, but purpose can be career. 
Yeah, like, can be. You know, but it's like if you didn't become again, an example, like an accountant, and you weren't taught that only value was found in being a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer. I mean, we can all list them because they're societal stories we all received. Then you're, if you're an artist, and then there's the identity of the starving artist, you can't even be a successful artist. So there's like all these different ways that we believe we're supposed to go to work to raise shareholder value. Like, Mm -hmm. really? Is that... That to me is, I was a pharmaceutical rep, so I can't say anything. I certainly was part of the massive cogs of the massive wheels of the massive systems. And I recognize that, but that's what someone who's been indoctrinated and part of a system does. So, you know, I have no shame for it. It was incredibly valuable. It woke me up and enabled me to have lots of conversations. But, you know, you look at it all and you think like, if I wasn't taught all these things, what would I want? Right. And the beautiful thing is that no matter where you are in life, like I truly doesn't matter how old you are, you can always reclaim your life. And I've seen it happen. Like where did life stop at 25? Like where did- so young for it to stop. Like where did we marriage and children by like, where did these norms and yes. Okay. The, The generations before us, right. There was no such thing as purpose through work. Like, you go to work, you support your family. You know, like I remember speaking to my dad about this. Like, I don't need purpose at work. I love being a father and coming home to my family. And that's what gives me life. And so like, it was just a really different cultural shift where I would be like, but are you happy? Like you spend so much time there, you know? And it doesn't make the person who dreams to be an accountant wrong. Or it's just always, you know, it's always like, what is the why behind why I did this? Like, and, and understanding, it's like, you know, and, and we spoke about this. It's like chivalry, the man paying on the first date, right? It's like, it's a beautiful concept. And if a man chooses that that's a value they want to uphold outside of a system, beautiful. But again, I can't, there's no one can make that conscious choice until they heal the impact of the system. And even women, how women date, like the checklist. Oh, like the, I mean, they're horror stories. Like they dehumanize men, but they make so much sense. And again, there's nothing wrong with wanting a physical attraction. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel like you can trust and security. These are not, again, these are not black and white, but we don't want to be looking for those things because we feel they're holes within us. Mm. And so it's, it's always the dance of, where is this mirroring maybe something that I need to look at so I can consciously date and I can make empowered choices based on a value system I choose versus what this is supposed to look like. Like, am I dating this man because he makes my family happy, but inside I'm dying? Like how many times I hear this story? Oh my gosh. Did I give up my life because my family didn't like him? And you know, it's just anyways, it's this, we can unpack this for days, but we can't make conscious choice until we heal the trauma of systems. It's like, or we, we do it together. We learn as we go, right? It's not like, don't put your life on hold, but it's always being aware that there's systems at play here. That's uh, so interesting to think that the list, like, for example, that list that you mentioned that someone might date with on, in no matter the gender is like, I'm going to hold them to this list that I was taught to want. And not to say that some of the things are bad, but that list, because I hold myself to the list of things I was taught to be. 
you know, it's such an interesting concept to then that in, it's like, how do I hold myself to my own uh, gender norms, my own um, standards that I've been taught? And we see that with what we've been taught is attraction. What we've been taught is a beautiful body. I mean, these things, although there certainly has been a reclamation in a lot of ways, Instagram has also heightened and perpetuated the this visual nature and appeal I mean, I have a really hard time with one, the Instagram accounts that are based on like a dude with a picture of his watch and his car steering wheel and like his Lamborghinis. Don't get me wrong. You can like those things. I don't care about that. It's the it's the posturing that I see in that that I for sure don't like it because I have been part of those systems. So I don't like that I've been part of those systems. And then seeing these other accounts that are based on like and I don't get to be the judge because I'm a white straight male, but there is a line between like exploiting oneself and being empowered. I don't know where that line is. I can't discuss it because I'll get murdered. But there is a really interesting line of like, of like overt sexualization of selves that we've been doing. And it's part of systems. It's con- But we get rewarded for them when everyone's playing in the system. And I say that for all genders. That's, this is not against women or against men. All genders get rewarded when they're playing in the system. Yeah. Like for women, like I actually posted about this, like when you, when women see a woman who's in a bigger body, like, and they deny that they have fat phobic conditioning, like that's a problem. Like we are wired unless somebody is standing in your ear as a child, as a little girl, every time you walk by a sports illustrated, a billboard, you are being meticulously conditioned. Mm-hmm. It is very purposeful. And unless your mom is standing there and saying that is not the beautiful body, which most of our moms don't know, we are left to make sense of the world, which means we are becoming fat phobic. It is in our bodies, which is why when we see somebody heavier, we automatically assume that they're unhealthy. Mm. We feel grossed out, right? But to deny that this is real will never let you access it. It's the same thing with racist embodied conditioning. I, You might not be overtly racist, but to deny that you are deeply wired and conditioned to embody certain responses is, again, we have to be willing to be honest about these things as women and understanding that for as long as I deny this, I am going to shame the woman on Instagram who is posting naked yoga videos instead of seeking to understand the why Mm -hmm. it's like we are so quick to judge and make assumptions and again this is not because we're bad people this is just an open conversation around how it's set up this way you know women are literally pinged against each other to not support each other to break each other down all of these things right Women, like I, I just feel better with men. I just have more male friends. Like I've heard that so many times. Yes. This is all, all conditioning. And we are so conditioned to be disempowered. And which is why I speak to dating, because it's like the value might not be that you want to be this career woman and XYZ, and that's beautiful. Like totally respect that to embrace sort of more traditional maternal roles and whatever. It's beautiful. But the empowerment piece comes in as that we can choose somebody based off of a knowing that we can also take care of ourselves, that I'm not dating because I don't feel like I can, that 
I know that I can take care of myself if I needed to. You know, you see these disastrous divorces where women stay because they don't know how to support themselves Mm -hmm. because of how we're taught of gender and money and earnings. And it's like, where can we start taking more responsibility in our internals to feel like we've got ourselves and not just financially, emotionally, so that I don't need to make my partner sort of this wounded thing, this constant. So it's it's always this call back to like, where are we doing our work? And then receiving support and working within systems like the yes and, and we can't do this alone, right? It's not possible. So it's always the dance of like, yes, and. <laughs> yeah, you have to take it. Like, I think about how in an unconscious way, it was hard for me to move towards or be attracted to a woman who didn't need some support in some way. And I saw that systemic conditioning within myself that in doing that, then what happens is, is then I will keep people in a place where they need support, where they are. And, and that's so... That there's one that I'm not enough without providing and they're not enough without a flaw or something that needs to be provided for. And it's so interesting to see that within the systemic nature of patriarchy and relational structures to see how unconsciously, even though I, I think I th- about how I think and I, I am aware of many, a, a few of the things I do, I am continuously being exposed to new layers of unconscious hooks I create of like where I place my value and, and being able to see that is freeing. Cause when you call it out, then it has no power anymore. And it also frees other people of like the person you might be trying to get the hook with, which is really interesting. You're right. Like you can't, you're part of a system. So you heal the system by changing within it, but then collectively we have to take a look at like, what things, what things do not work for us? What things are kind of, cause you were saying like, it's easy to look at an Instagram that's based on a dude with a Lamborghini and judge it versus like, what are the systems that created the need that that is where, what he or she or whatever thinks is valuable. And I think that really comes back to what you said earlier, which is the deeper you go within yourself then all of a sudden you're able to look at everything around you with this sense of like, what was the systemic conditioning of that person? Then you're able to look at your partner or your parent or a friend and say like, their response right now is to protect themselves. I'm not going to tolerate it if it's unhealthy, but I have compassion for where it comes from. There's an empathy that is, that is like, there's a system that shaped you that you think this is the best available behavior to you right now. And it's not helpful, so I'm not going to tolerate it, but I'm going to have empathy for it. I'm going to say, this isn't who you are. This is just what you've been taught to be. And it's like, you know, again, empathy doesn't mean acceptance. It doesn't mean forgiveness. It doesn't mean that a lot of behaviors are okay. It just means that, you know, we got to a place where I don't want that poison anymore. Like, I don't want to keep living my life every day, making them wrong so I can feel right because that's what it is. It's like, it's a trauma response where our ego needs to be like, but I'm right here, but I'm not wrong. And every time we get into that response, we get out of healing. It's like, I can't see clearly with the veil of judgment because my judgment is designed to protect me from being able clearly. To be not enough, to not know, to be wrong. Yeah. That makes sense. You see that politically so much. And then we judge ourselves for judging. Like, wait, you're such a (laughs) Instead of being like, hold on, where did that come from? 
like we judge ourselves, you know, even in circles of women, like, you know, a lot of my earlier women's circles, all we did when we got together was gossip, like bash other women, bash our lives, all of like, and again, why? Like, I dreamed of circles of women who were empowered and kind and calling, lovingly calling each other out, but couldn't access it. And it's like, until I healed my sisterhood wounding by giving women opportunity and chance, it wasn't going to happen. And did that make us bad people or women bad people that do that? No, it's a call in to ask yourself, what do I get from that? And in deflecting through judgment, where am I avoiding work that I could be doing to feel lighter? I don't want the hate in me anymore. Like we realize that we all have shadow. We have hate in us. We have judgments that we didn't choose. It doesn't make you bad people. No. And that's what we have to undo that. There's not a brokenness here. There's not like a goodness versus badness that, yeah, are those behaviors kind? No, they're not kind. But do we always do kind things when we're reacting to trauma and healing systems? No. Can we forgive ourselves and learn and do better? Yes. Like it's less about the labeling and the like, oh my God, I'm a bad person. That's me. I got called out. It's like, no, no, no. This is like a loving, gentle call in to assess, to ask bigger questions, to connect to the experience of life you want to have, not the circumstances the experience you want to have, the way you want to feel, how you want to be. And that happens through the actions we take and the ways we show up for ourselves. And it's all internal because if I don't feel it in here, no one around me is going to, it will always be fleeting and it will always come and go. So we're talking about trauma and the ways to heal it and the journey of self-healing through therapy slash then moving into somatic work and body work. I'm interested of like how the body deals with trauma and copes with trauma. Like, you know, we were talking a bit about your journey before about your own journey of your body experiencing autoimmune to those experiences. So how does that occur? So, yeah. So I, you know, I had early life trauma that started as young as three years old. So you know, I was a very sick child. And again, it's hearsay whether it was because of the consistent trauma I was enduring or because I was sick. I don't know what came first, but here's how it manifested over time. I missed a lot of school. I had chronic strep throat. I had surgeries. I had chicken pox uh, three times. Like I was always, always ill. I had very poor immunity. And so because I was always sick, I was always on antibiotic, which depleted my immune system because at the time that was the response. And anyways, as the years went on, even though I was a competitive athlete and all of these things, I was a very, very tired person. Like I needed a daily nap my whole life. I was always, always sick. Like I always had something, whether it was strep, a cold, bronchitis, a fever, like every other month, even into my adulthood, like I had chronic bronchial pneumonia. I developed shingles like at a very young age, like late 20s, early 30s. And anyways, to link this to my story and oh yeah, headaches were a huge thing. Back pain, body pain, like the whole thing. And 
I just thought that I was a sick person and that I was manifesting this because I couldn't get better. That like, because I was so scared of always getting sick, that I was getting more sick. Anyways, all of this dialogue that we hear. And the reality was, was that I was consistently sick. And no matter what I tried, I wasn't getting better. And to further this, I, my hormones were completely out of whack because what does trauma do to your body? It messes with your cortisol. It messes with your dopamine, your serotonin, all of these hormones that women need and that stabilize us for estrogen production, progesterone production. So I became completely a mentor. Like I did not get, I lost my period completely. And um, anyway, so all of this is that living in constant fight or flight depletes the body and a fight or flight body is not going to thrive. And for some people, it manifests an illness. And I consistently lived in fight or flight. And on top of the fact that I think when we're survivors of trauma, we don't sleep well, we have insomnia, and we're always anxious, we're always looking. And so we're always depleting the systems, always. And so for many, it's very hard to stay healthy. And so in healing trauma, and, and not necessarily like finding this regulated nervous system constantly, because that's not real, but in understanding how to find grounding, more balance, more regulation, and in healing my emotional constipation, which is how I refer to it, like in healing shame and all of the emotions and learning to get uncomfortable and express my trauma through my body to release it, I started getting better. Yeah, it was like I was sharing, you know, this is the longest stretch in my life that I haven't been ill. And it's been the greatest blessing to feel like, wow, I'm actually a healthy woman. That's such an incredible feeling. I can only imagine. Yeah. When I worked as a rep, I sold this drug that was for irritable bowel syndrome. And there was some correlation in the research to sexual trauma and irritable bowel, but that was very much dismissed, I remember, in the conversations. Like, ah, eh, that evidence is loose. And at this time, remember, I'm like 24. I haven't read or learned about all of this stuff. I'm in the scientific model of the only way of evidence-based way of seeing the world. So if it didn't have good evidence, it couldn't be true. That was sort of what I was taught to the way to think. And I remember a lot of the times the family physician's response, not to maybe the face of the, the IBS patient, but to, and this was true of also with fibromyalgia. I remember these conversations happened about both of those. And I remember the physicians would express some of them like, oh, it's all in their head. It's a psychosomatic. And I was like, now, in hindsight, you know, I look back and I am reading uh, Molecules of Emotion right now, which is such a tremendous, such a cool book all about psychoneuroimmunology. Yeah. And it was so interesting looking back. I'm like, of course, it was all in their, it was all in their neurotransmitters and their hormones because their bodies are, you know, when you're in fight, flight, freeze, fawn, you're not, your body's not like, hey, we should digest this food because we certainly want to we need that. It's like no blood goes to, or very little blood goes to the gastrointestinal system and to digestion. So of course, I inhibited digestion as a sign of being in a free state or being stuck in a trauma state. And now that just seems so logical. And, you know, when I started to research a lot of the science on relationships, I remember seeing like 
there's a delayed healing for people in high conflict relationships. There's um, a larger amount of leaky gut in people in high conflict relationships. And then, you know, you just follow the cascade. Okay, well, if it's a, a small wound that heals in five days is delayed by a day, just by a high conflict relationship. That's a large amount of delay. Imagine what it does to a body suffering from heart disease or cancer or um, any form of autoimmune or what um, leaky gut leads to, which is, you know, toxins getting into the blood and then inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. Inflammation is what leads to disease. So, you know, it's it, it makes such logical sense that all of these are connected, but you didn't have to go back very far in research or science to do- that doctors of certain specialties believe you know they're not connected that all these things aren't integrated and and part it's a system that the human body is not a system and that trauma wouldn't do that to our bodies you know it just it it, to me it's so it's like that babies couldn't feel pain that used to be a thought how the fuck was that a thought right there was a study that showed how many cancer patients actually have trauma in their lives you know here's here's the thing it's like and i want to bring this back to medical the medical field and the mental health profession And a lot of listeners might not agree with this, but not everything is going to be scientifically proved to be true. Sometimes our subjective truth is true because that's our lived experience. And if that rubs up against a medical model or a psychological paradigm or, or a therapeutic intervention, if we cannot be willing to be flexible, flexible, and learn to treat our patients in comprehensive ways by forever seeking to learn and grow and not be attached to paradigms. Even in the medical field, I had been failed so many times and not just the medical field, by the integrative field. Doctors calling themselves integrative doctors, not doing blood work, treating me with for voodoo symptoms, stealing thousands of dollars from me when I was so vulnerable and ill. And then telling me that just to keep coming. And it's like, none of this is okay. And we have to learn to trust what our bodies are telling us. Like if I am consistently ill and I'm not getting better in this system, it is not only my, it is, it is fully my right to seek alternative care and to keep seeking alternative care. And stop spending so much time making myself wrong and telling like keep doing the problem because keep doing the same modality, getting the not getting a result. Like if you're not seeing any progress, then then you're saying like switch it up, do some more research, find some. I love that there's so many people who have done that that now have created access to different things, different modalities, different ways of healing. Like, like I would imagine, was that what somatic experiencing was born from? Was it born from the, like, you look at people like um, acupuncturists, chiropractors, these are all professions that have in general historically been shamed by the main medical model. They're often not even reimbursed by uh, benefits. And uh, and I'm Canadian, so I'm only speaking from Canadian experience. But that shows you that we don't value them because insurers are not willing to refund or fund them, even though there are so many people who have been healed through those modalities. And I found that was an interesting statement in the book. She's a neuro, she is a neuroscientist. This woman is a, a researcher. Like she's dies by research, but had to let, as her research started to show her that emotion was such an impactful thing on, on health that she started to see like the very people 
her model had been taught to disregard the the acupuncturist, the whatever, the holistic um, models. She was like, I started to see that everything they were saying was starting to be supported by science. Right. And, and then we listen. And then we listen. How did people hear heal years ago without access? And I don't, I think Western medicine is a great resource. Like I totally- like if people need medication, I support it. If people go choose cancer treatment, I support it. Like this is not, again, this is a yes and. How can we grow in the paradigms in which we work? Like, you know, we can improve these systems by continually seeking to learn instead of becoming burnt out, overworking, clinging to to no outdated textbooks, clinging to evidence-based science because you have a human in front of you that's going to defy that story and that's going to need a flexible approach and this goes for any system that treats people like there is no such thing as a cookie cutter method for a single human in any field like we are so nuanced and different and it's like there's no way physical illness cannot be linked to trauma And look at the health disparity. I mean, this could be a whole bigger topic, but a constant body in fight or flight is a depleted body. It is not a well body. It is a body with more inflammation, right? It is a body that doesn't rest. And to not acknowledge that in healing and to only work on the thoughts is extremely problematic, like beyond problematic. Um, Not to acknowledge like the systemic, like systemic racism and systemic, uh, like how socioeconomic status affects people. I think about like the difference between Canada and the US. One of the main differences that I know of is that in Canada, you're guaranteed healthcare. Like that's just happening. And, but in the States, at least from what I understand, you're not going to get the best care all the time. You might not even get care. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Oh yeah. And so if if that is the way you walk around the world, then if something like COVID exists, you don't even feel covered. You're not even safe. And if you're not safe to your own health and you're not safe because I mean I mean they also so many people own guns. That's a whole other story. And everyone has the right to bear arms. Don't get mad listening to this. Um but that alone is like I remember being in Idaho and this lady was like, well, if I move to Canada, you can't carry a handgun. I'm like, why would you want to carry a handgun? Like that to me makes no sense. But hey, you have the right to what you want. But I'm like, if everyone's carrying handguns, then we're afraid that everyone's going to shoot me. So that, again, is a baseline level of fear, which affects my ability to heal my ability, my ability to just chill. You can't Netflix and chill when when you don't have health care. You Netflix and kind of chill. And if you look at why even in COVID despair, like why more black people are being affected, like A, they they are more sick with hypertension, diabetes, cancer, simply because of the constant trauma and lack of access. So it's like, you know, there's no way that we can deny that these two things are correlated. And we now know more than ever the importance of healing, healing the body. The body has to release. It's like for all of these emotions and traumatic experiences that we carry, it is like, it's almost like tar, I guess, in a sense that it it sticks to the system and it doesn't allow the system to heal. And um, we have to actively clean that out to, to be well, mind, body, spirit. Like I cannot talk my way out of a headache like 
that is associated with a lineage of memory. Like I can't just be like, okay, headache, go away. Like it doesn't work <laughs> like that, you know? Um, you can't say an affirmation that'll just get rid of it. <laughs> I lived on Advil because no one could treat my headaches. And wow. until I got into chiropractic care and trauma healing in the body that I realized like, whoa, like life is possible without a headache. Like I could function on seven hours of sleep, like instead of 11, like, whoa, you know, Wow. like I didn't even, we don't, it's like, we don't even know how good we can feel in the world because all we, so many of us, all we know is like pain and heaviness. Like we don't even think we have access to that. And, and the systems keep reminding us, keep just, keep just fixing it on the outside, fixing it on the outside, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the model of everything we've been taught is like, treat the symptom, don't prevent the experience, don't prevent the actual state, you know? And that's, that reactive response is how we do everything. You know, it's like, we aren't proactive. Look at our education system for the most part. I know it's changing in some places, but like for the most part, we're not proactive in teaching emotional health, which would, which would by an intern teach relational health. And the greatest determinant of the health in your life is your ability to be in relationship, your ability to be in healthy, loving community that, and that it doesn't matter whether you're in a romantic relationship or not. And that's all evidence-based. So if you're evidence-driven, go study, go read the Harvard uh, men's study, which I think is now called the Harvard well-being study or something. But the, that stuff is all just so logical, but yet like, I even think if we taught emotional wellness in schools to kids as they grow up, the amount, because the way the government's work and funding works is it goes, if it makes a difference now, we'll spend the money. Right. So like, if we know we're going to get an outcome that's measurable, that gets me reelected or gets me celebrated, then we'll do it. But then look at COVID. The US printed something like $7 trillion. I don't know how many billions Canada printed, but just like all of a sudden there's funding because this is something that's directly in front of us. But where's the funding for shifting communities, safety, uh, hunger, uh, disease, overdose, all the mental health stuff? And it's like, if we put the money and the time now into changing, at least if we do it as parents on our own, I'm not a parent, but I will for sure be doing this, is we put our time and money into, or just our time, because you can get all these things for free, is learn about ourselves and our relationships and how we communicate. Just learn. I, the health outcomes in five, 10 years, incredible. Because everything we do that is inevitably a lifestyle choice that is unhealthy, that leads to all these comorbidities, are ways that we treat trauma, like smoking, um, lack of exercise. All these things are ways that we numb. Mm -hmm. Alcohol. Mm -hmm. They love that alcohol is an essential service during, like in Canada, they extended liquor store hours because it's such an essential service. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I hope you're taking all that tax money and putting it into all the mental health fucking crisis. That's where you haven't even touched the feather of the tip of the edge of the mental health crisis that is about to occur for the next, I mean, our lifetimes, but for sure for the next five years. Oh, yeah. And I said that at the beginning of this, like, this is there. It's nuts. It's nuts. It, it scares me. Yeah, honestly. It's not even going to happen until COVID ends. Like we, 
and when it, oh, I know it's, it's lurking and it's going to be disastrous. And, and I think that as systems that serve people, if we cannot get past rigidity, evidence, uh, modalities, our beliefs and how we were taught and, and you're wrong. If we can all come together to expand, to solve a problem collectively, taking so many things into consideration, like maybe we have a chance truly like, because even if you look at the services offered now, like, you know, I registered to become a a, a therapist to help in the COVID crisis on an online platform. I'm not going to name the platform here um, because it helps a lot of people. And the day one, they assigned me 50 clients, five zero. And I did it just to help for the crisis. It was $25 an hour for me. and, And I took this on to support and I reached out and I said, what? Wait, 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 you want me to see 50 clients in a week? And they're like, well, we're overflowing. And I'm like, I can't even catch my breath. Like I have another job. Like I, I can't do this, you know? But even in the, it, it just, it choked me. It like brought me back to my career in outpatient mental health. And even the expectations, how does a therapist, if you wanted me to treat an autistic child, but you're not willing to give me two days off work to go to a training, you're not willing to bring in a supervisor to support the training I just did. And you're not willing to keep growing. We have a problem. Like mm-hmm. and that's the thing it's like, time is money. Numbers are money. Like there's in, in, in mental health systems. And so they're designed to fail people. Is that because they're, because pri- are these privately funded or are these publicly funded? Any kind of outpatient, they're all grant funded. Like, you know, they're all nonprofit. Um, it's not about people. It's not about getting better. And even with doctors, it's the same thing. Like doctors are not being paid nearly what they were. And like, they only get X amount of time with you. They don't have time in a day to spend time and expand their consciousness and read a new, more progressive. Again, it's like, here we go. Capitalism. Like if that is the overarching thing, that time is money people are dying every day in the system because we can't help people. And we don't think it's like people think it's normal behavior, like that this is right. There's gotta be another paradigm. Like, I don't know what it looks like, but it can't be this. Like we have to have space for self-care, for growth, for our own healing, for our own, like, you know, for so many things. And it's not given. Man, no, and you you think of like how the school system, and this is like, hey, I love teachers, I love nurses, I love doctors, I love everybody who works in these systems. It's just that like when we aren't questioning them, when we're not looking to step outside of them, when we're not like when we do this with anything, though, this is true of not just our healthcare or our mental health, but of any belief we hold. If we are not saying, why do I believe this? why am I not open to other ways of seeing the world? You know, that's that's the same thing that though matters so much relationally. If I'm in relationship with you and we have a conflict and I'm not open to just seeing your side, you know, I see this in, I mean, the polarity of politics is really occurring a lot in the States. It's occurring a lot everywhere. You know, nationalism is rising. And it, for me, and we don't have to get political, but the point of it is, is, why can you not hold a belief that's different than mine and me get curious about yours so that I can understand it 
so that I can also be flexible in mine. If I'm not flexible in mine, you're not going to be flexible in yours. You know, here's my thing with that though. So I, I saw something yesterday and I see, actually, you know, I've seen the sentiment a lot. We don't have to understand. We just have to accept. We need to hold space, but here's the thing. And this, I struggle like for people that slide into my DMs attacking me that racism isn't real. Like, oh yeah. First of all, I'm not seeking to understand nor accept your perspective unless you're sliding <laughs> into my saying, can you please lead me in the direction of learning? Because there are certain things that are black and white. And in my life, I have chosen only to participate in relationship in communities with people that align with that or are willing to be called in. And like, you Agreed. Know, it's, it's not perfect, but like, it's, it's hard to like, you know, when we say like, we just need to under, not under, it's like, there's like, I will never understand or accept homo. Like I understand it. Homophobia, ableism, ageism, sexism, <laughs> misogyny, patriarchy, cat, like I could go on. <laughs> All the isms and the archies. Like, I love talking about the gray. Those are not gray area topics. And no, they're not. And how do you make them gray? Here, this is where I struggle. Like, how do you make them gray so we can grow? Like, how do we- I certainly agree with you. I'm sorry, go on. I didn't no, that's like, I always struggle in this area. Like, I don't want to shut people down because I want them to have the opportunity, but I can't engage in rhetoric that is not only harmful, but deadly. Yeah. Like I, a conversation like racism doesn't exist. I'm not even going to participate in that conversation because it's not worth my energy because they can't, they're not even, Hey, tell me about how racism might exist in ways. I don't know. That's a totally different. And that could be coming from someone who, I mean, that's occurred, I think from a lot of white people more recently being like, Oh shit, I didn't know, or I didn't realize or whatever the statement might be. I think though about things like people who are against like gay marriage, something like that, where I'm like, I don't understand why you care that someone else wants to marry someone they love. It in no way affects you. But then, and so I do get triggered by it and I get reactive, but my, I do understand that by being open to that, it means now that their belief system that has been indoctrinated in them might be wrong. And if they're open to that, because no one can look at two people in love from their soul, from their heart and not go, you have the right to everything you want. It doesn't harm anybody. You're just loving who you love. Go do you. But when that threatens my indoctrinated part of myself that no one ever said I had the right to go and do what I want, or I had the right to be who I am, then we cling tighter. You know, we cling tighter to these beliefs that are, you know, as soon as you recognize that a belief of yours is false, then now the first time you ever do that, you're now open to the possibility that all your beliefs are false. And that causes an existential crisis for people. Really, it causes a death, a death of self who was clinging, who needs certainty, who needs everything to be the way it was shown. And, you know, like, I don't think anyone's born as a hateful person. No. You know, for sure not. It's learned. And so I have compassion for where it comes from. But, you know, I, we were saying earlier, like, there's a difference between compassion and tolerance. You can have empathy and compassion, but you don't need to tolerate bullshit. And it's a hard line, right? If we're thinking about, and we see a lot of this like new world, not returning to normal. And 
you know, there's a lot of things internally that's like, I see that. I, I learn a lot, you know, a lot about this. There's a, an amazing account on Instagram, the Racism Recovery Center, and she speaks a lot to like discerning between who's stepping in and who's hateful and a lot of these things. And it's, uh, these are hard things because those don't feel like you're right, I'm wrong conversations. Those feel like moral value, humanity conversations where like, I don't even know how to enter a debate about right or wrong here. and like, I totally get the religious and the, the piece to that too, is that if you're in institutions and systems that are forever objectifying a type mm-hmm. of behavior or a person, they are no longer human, which is how then hate. And so it's easier to align with something if the person doing the behavior is less of a human and people don't even realize that in disowning another's humanity, they're disowning their humanity. And so then you're not even having a conversation with love and heart and humanity. You're speaking to hate and it becomes this thing that is not everyone's going to be ready for it. And do we need the masses to align to move change forward? You know, it's a question I think about and, and ponder a lot. Like, my energy is not well spent in somebody so indoctrinated and afraid and unwilling, but outcasting them also is so dangerous. Like there is so much there. I have no answers for that, but I think about these things a lot. Like they just need to be loved and brought back into humanity. Like, and I know it sounds so frou-frou, but like, it's so sad to watch and, and see that level of hate and disownment of self, because that's what you have to do to hate another person. And to deny another person's right to love and existence and, and, and all of these things. I think it's a yes and, you know, that that the work of deconstructing, reconstructing, whatever it looks like, um, that I think we're all actively doing just by having these conversations, listening to conversations, reading books, whatever it is, participating in communities, activism, that we're doing it. And that's where, like, we have to still hold a loving space but again not permission but space of of like well-boundaried compassion that says like i'm not going to tolerate your shit but you know it's like it's like when i deal with people who are trolls i don't deal with them because it's not worth my time you know like someone whose job and worth is found in just trolling is just not they're not open to seeing the world in a different way but you know it's a afraid. They're afraid of who they're going to become if they leave the system. And really what they're looking for is permission to leave by trolling you. Like if I bring you down and bring you here, then we will just suffer together. And it's, you know, it's a powerful thing to feel like, wow, I have to spend my time hating and berating and trolling. And it's, um, the whole psychology behind it is wow. Like, what has happened it is. That, that we're here, you know, and it's real and it's hurtful and we're people behind these squares. Like, you know, I think, sometimes, you know, people forget that that's for sure. Like, you know, often it's so easy to make assumptions about people and their lives based on squares without really realizing that like we to every last degree are able to control our image on social media. And like what we show the world and the message we share, no one has any idea actually what we do in our lives and who we are as people and how we think the the waiter and what we're actually doing for activism or not doing. Mm -hmm. And 
dangerous. You know, we pedestal and make assumptions and troll, but we, why don't we see people as people on a journey too? And why are we so quick to make storylines and projections without realizing like this person is a person with feelings who's doing their best like me? And we can't, it's not possible for so many people. Um, but it's important to bring humanity even back to squares. Like, you don't know me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know what you want me to know, but there's so many nuances of you that I cannot possibly know, you know? And so remembering that as we spend our days, literally living in social media, scrolling land, like where are we not living in our own lives and feeling fulfilled in our, and, and, and all of these things that we're pedestaling and seeking out different lives and, and all of these things that we do again, not in judgment, but in like, I want that, but I can't have it instead of putting the energy into permission and, and, and healing that part of us. Right. Anyways, that was another, but. Well, it is interesting how much energy people will spend in policing other people, you know, rather than just like, participating in conversations and, and, um, building community, but they're online. And you, I, what I find so fascinating about online is it's like people can act in a way that there's no social consequence, you know, really there's no immediate social consequence. If you were to do something in public that people say or do on the internet, you would get beat up, you'd get thrown in jail, you'd get, you know, there'd, there'd be a consequence. But I mean, what's the consequence on Instagram? You get blocked. Even then people get mad that they get blocked and you're like, well, what do you expect? Like, you can't come on here throwing hate. And even if they get, you know, there might, yeah, other people, other and bigger communities, right? Your people might protect you and all of these things. But there is like, you hurt someone. And like, I don't care how evolved you are, you have feelings. And it's Mm -hmm. like, the behaviors are hurtful. We're not above getting hurt because we're, we do this work and that's real. And again, like we're humans, we're all humans, but there's so many, there's so much division that we can't see that. Like we can't forgive people for like working through their stuff and doing the best they can, because if they're not acting exactly in the way that we've assigned and projected onto them to be, and something is out of line and they say something that like, destroyed my perception. It's like, whoa, (laughs) you know, and this is where it comes back to reclaiming our identities. It's amazing how delicate we are though. You know, in that reclamation, there can't be a fragility too. Do you know what I mean? Like that fragility and humanity on Instagram. I want to see more of it, you know, like, and we're getting there. But like, I'd love to see more and more people, especially, you know, being more human and showing that. And I think it could be so healing. Anyways, it's just my opinion, but. I totally agree with you. I think like when you get triggered by someone's post or you get triggered by what someone says, it's like, get curious, get curious. Where does it come from? Why do you want to hate on them? Why do you, you know, I look at that. Like, I remember I got, I've gotten really incredible feedback that I've been triggered by. That whenever I have a rule that when I get triggered, I get curious. So then I ask myself, like, okay, is what they're saying kind of true? And I'm usually it is. Or I'm like, because it's easy when you know that a truth doesn't align with the truth within yourself, then you can say, oh, that's not true. But when you've done enough work to know that you're operating with kindness and with love, 
then when someone says something that gives you feedback that you're not, then all of a sudden you're like, okay, that is true. Okay. And I've learned so much from people who have provided me with that kind of feedback. And um, yeah, I do think there's a reminder of, of that, like, I had to stop being as sensitive as I was to certain things. That was part of the healing of this work is like, if, you know, my podcast gets a one-star review because I, this happened recently because a guest of mine mentioned Trump. It's like, that's why I get a one-star review. Like the, I like all the other episodes, but not that. And I have to like reach into the little boy in me and be like, relax, man, chill. It's all good. Yeah. And I, and I think anyways, there's so much internal work that goes into being an online, I guess, quote, healer, influencer, like, and being able to take responsibility for those triggers and like your post didn't hit as much as you thought, or it's like, can I stand behind this? Because this is what's real for me. And can that be okay? Like, can I be okay? You know, and even Mm. if somebody comes in to hate this or makes a comment, okay, like, where can we grow through this? Like, I'm still not a bad human. Like this is not a person mm. attack, you know, and, and remembering that is really important. Well, I think of like how much of my posting at first, when I first created my Instagram account, it was so, so scary, scary to write about what I really thought, what I really felt. It was so healing at the exact same time. And to then continue to do it despite pushback or response or whatever, but to see how often when I'm, um, working with a group of people that maybe there's like a desire to express something on their social media that they have, but they don't want to do it because they don't want the feedback from their family or their friends. And I'm like, that's the growth. It's like, are you willing to express your truth at the cost of not being liked? And that, I mean, I think that's the work we, as you were saying, the self-healing is accepting your internal truths beginning to express them, reclaim yourself, choose your own identity, decide who you want to be and take responsibility for your life. And in doing that, oh my gosh, it's such a beautiful, all of a sudden, like everyone who resists you at first, eventually some of those people start to follow, start to do the same thing, start to be like, that was inspiring. Wow. They survived. I tried to resist them at first. And they feel more connected. Like those more revealing, scary posts, like every time I've even made one has brought me so much closer to my community. Like the ones that I was like, no way, you know? And for as long as we're hiding and living unexpressed, like there's things we're not sharing, we feel heavy. Like we feel Mm -hmm. that there's pain in that. And there's also pain in that the fact that we're unexpressed is that it is such a threat to the system and it's painful. It's not easy. And Again, this comes into like, I intellectually know why I'm not doing it, but the healing choice is to do it because that's the life I want to experience. I want to feel free. And that's again, the yes and two things can be true. This is not going to be a safe thing for the system, but this is a safe thing for me here. Oh, amen on that. (laughs) Now that's all right. So now you've heard it. Choose freedom choose freedom. It's not going to be fun. Freedom is not always fun to get to, but once you get to it, it is incredible. Once you get to a state of alignment, you'll never want to not be in it. Like when you're aligned with your authentic true self, which is a journey. I mean, I keep uncovering who my authentic true self is because the layering, the systems, the programming is so deep. And, and here's the thing on alignment. Alignment is choosing to align with the moment. 
which is the truth for you in the moment. Alignment is not this thing that's like peace and joy all the time. Alignment sometimes is like right now, I didn't feel right. And that's aligned for me. And I'm going to be in this moment with it. And because I think oftentimes alignment is this like state people strive to get to, to like all of a sudden I'm living aligned and in integrity and life feels good. But truth being told that I think we don't talk about enough is that like, there's always going to be pain, like, like Mm -hmm. life and, but it doesn't have to feel suffocating and so devastating all the time. And so hard, like the stories that it's been and really living in true alignment is living in truth of the moment of yourself, of what's being asked of you and what you're being called to. And that's really integrity. Like I don't show up to this wedding with a smile on my face. If I'm grieving my dog, I don't show up happy. Like I don't have to be something I'm not. And that's, that's really living in alignment. I'm going to post this, even though I know it's going to upset people because that's my truth. And I deserve that space. And so unpartnering alignment with always feeling good. Mm -hmm. That's good. I like that. So, well, in that state, in that, on that note, (laughs) where do people find more of your invitations to momentary alignment and healing and somatic work and embodiment and ladies groups and all the things? So you can find me on Instagram at Tammy Amanda underscore and it's T A M I or Tammy Amanda.com. It's my website. And that's really We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you. I appreciate our discussions. Yeah. You will be back. I'm sure as we uncover more systems and try to change the world. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.